and be seated. Okay, so we are this evening continuing in our series entitled, Why Is This Even In Here? And of course, we're looking at passages in the Bible that are hard to understand, confusing, odd, strange, weird, passages, of course, that make us scratch our head and ask the question, why is this even in here? Um, So, tonight's topic is one that I have spent the last two weeks wrestling over, and truthfully, it's something that's that's made me really uncomfortable for years, Um, because unlike so many of the other, you know, seemingly problematic topics of the Bible, this one doesn't have a solution that's immediately clear-cut, right? This is not one that immediately provides us uh, with an easy, simple answer. I had originally planned on uh, preaching on this topic last week, but as it got closer and closer to Sunday, it got more and more clear to me in my mind that I wasn't there yet, um, that I I hadn't landed on um, what I needed to land on yet. Um, I still felt like I needed to wrestle more. And... uh, I didn't want to stand up here and just give shallow answers, right? That's never my goal. I I never want to stand up here and and pretend away problems um, and and give you answers that you would agree with anyway, and and then give you things that any skeptic might look at and say, well, that's really a lame response. Now, granted, a skeptic might say that anyway, but um, as I was playing devil's advocate with myself in my own head, um, I, I, again, I just wasn't satisfied last week. So I went with the topic last week of Jacob's spotted sheep, and I thought that was uh, worthwhile. And so I spent another week this last week wrestling over this topic, and uh, the Lord led me to some observations that I think are much more worthwhile. Um, and though it doesn't remove all shades of doubt and question, I think it's enough that we can leave tonight uh, feeling like we've been given a satisfactory answer. So tonight's topic is the topic of polygamy. All right. So in 2010, the network TLC debuted a reality show with a distinction that was entirely unique. It followed the lives of a polygamous family in Utah. The name of that show was Sister Wives. Anybody ever watched? Mr. Wives, okay. A few of you, very good. Um, my uh, family loves to watch TV that doesn't matter, and uh, this was uh, in there. So um, it highlighted the plural family dynamic of a guy named Cody Brown and his four wives, Mary, Janelle, Christine, and Robin. And their together combined 18 children. Uh, Cody is legally married to one woman, Robin. But his marriages to Mary, Janelle, and Christine are considered spiritual unions. Interestingly, Cody was originally married to uh, Mary, but he legally divorced her so that he could legally marry Robin, 
in order to legally adopt uh, Robin's three children that she had from a previous monogamous marriage. So um, they have, within their union, some remarriage uh, there as well. Cody uh, married Robin 30 years ago, then spiritually married Janelle three years later, then spiritually married Christine another year after that, and 16 years later, divorced his first wife so that he could marry their fourth wife, Robin. And they're all now together. And so season one of this show featured the wedding of, uh, of Cody and Robin. So, of course, reception of the show has been mixed. Most of us could not ever imagine being in a polygamous relationship, right? Those of us that are married can't imagine being married to, you know, three others at the same time. Uh, I think for most of us, one is plenty. Um, and that's what, that's what motivated the Browns to create this show in, in the first place. They wanted to combat societal judgment. They wanted to educate the masses on how a polygamous marriage could be healthy. And so, among other things, the show uh, revealed how the family divides labor, um, how they make decisions, and, of course, how all of these spouses relate to one another. Especially interesting in the show um, is the way that it, it seems as though the wives treat one another as sisters rather than as rivals. One of the wives, Christine, uh, grew up in a polygamous family herself, and she said that growing up, she wanted, she looked forward to in her future, she wanted to have sister wives more than she wanted to have a husband, um, interestingly enough. So in this show, the Browns wanted to show the world how normal they are. And the ratings follow suit. The pilot episode drew nearly 2.5 million viewers. The finale had nearly 3 million. And the show is currently still running in its 14th season with almost 170 episodes produced. Cody Brown believes that his family is blessed by God. And that Jesus does not condemn them at all. Because in his words, quote, Love should not be limited but rather should be spread. Now, I don't know if anyone has informed him that that's a terrible argument, one that Hugh Hefner could use, um, but I digress. Uh, this family is a member of a fundamentalist Mormon denomination that touts polygamy as being fully biblical. After all, as we all know, there are numerous examples in the Bible of prominent biblical figures, especially in the Old Testament, with multiple wives, multiple concubines. So Cody Brown says, I have adopted a faith that embraces this lifestyle. In fact, it recommends it, and it likes to reward good behavior. So if you're good with one marriage, they figure they'll be good with two. I hope they think I'll be good with four. Um, in an interview with the Las Vegas Sun, one of the wives, Christine, said, we have a story that needs to be heard. We're a normal, healthy, happy family. That's why we decided to show you our family. And Cody added, we thought if we open up, other fundamentalist families could open up too. 
Now, this is a place where I feel like we as a church need to be honest with ourselves. It's easy to look at this show and scoff and say, Pish, posh, and poppycock. After all, that's what you said, right? In those exact words, right? Our immediate response would be to say, they're wrong. What they're doing is sin. The Bible teaches monogamy. One man, one woman forever. But then we are confronted with some very uncomfortable truths, are we not? Like the fact that a number of the heroes of the faith were, in fact, polygamists. Or the fact that in the Bible, God never comes out and says, Thou shalt not have more than one wife. So what do we do with that? How can we biblically make a case against Cody Brown and his sister wives? So here's how we're going to go about this sermon. First, we'll give a full look at the problem. Uh, or what seems to be the problem, anyway. Uh, namely, the Bible endorsing polygamy. Then, I'll give some possible solutions and responses. And finally make an observation for us today. So, as a word of warning, um, if you're holding your notebook, waiting for me to get to point one, you will be waiting until next week. uh, Because in this sense, this will be a pointless sermon. Um, But, there will be, again, observations made along the way, so I promise to give you some things to write down. Um, Hopefully, this will accomplish answering for us the question that we've been wrestling with, which is, why is this even in here? So, let us start with um, our quiz. uh, We've been starting every uh, sermon in this series with what I call the four laws of scriptural interpretation. These four laws of scriptural interpretation apply not only to the weird passages, but to every passage of scripture, helping us understand more fully Every text that we come to. So, I already see a hand. What's the first one? The Bible should be read as an ancient document. The Bible should be read as an ancient document. Thank you, sir. When we approach the words of Scripture, we cannot approach them as if they were written in 2021. These are texts that were written by ancient authors at an ancient time to an ancient audience. That does not mean that it's only ancient. The Bible is eternal, We have to first understand it in its ancient context before we can derive from it the eternal truths therein. Next. Show the difference between description and description. Yes. We have to look and see the difference between description and prescription. When the Bible records something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it recommends that thing. When the Bible says, this happened... It doesn't necessarily mean you go and do the same thing. And that's something that will come up in today's um, topic, because when we look at the heroes of the faith, what we see are flawed people. Every single person in the Bible, except for one, is imperfect. Every single one of them has failures, sins, and those things are put prominently on display. Those things are not sugar-coated. Those things are not glossed over. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly with every single uh, character described in the book. And so we can't come to every character and say, well, they did this, therefore I should too. Okay? Because when we look at a character, uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but when we look at a character, 
like David and say, well, David had multiple wives, so should I. David also murdered someone so that he could take their wife. I don't think the Bible is saying that you should murder someone for their spouse either. What's the next one? Genre matters. Yes, it does. Thank you. Genre matters. Every single section of scripture is a particular literary genre. And so we can't read every literary genre in the exact same way. You can't take words that are intended to to be poetic to be literal. And you can't take words intended to be literal to be poetic. And so often people approach each passage of Scripture as if it's meant to be 100% literal. Sometimes Scripture uses literary devices like hyperbole. And, And so, like all of us do. And so oftentimes if someone looks at a hyperbolic statement and says, well, the Bible says that. Well, yes, it's being hyperbolic on purpose, uh, and that's okay. Finally, there's one more. Scripture interprets Scripture. Yes, ma'am. Scripture interprets Scripture. Especially in the times that we come to something confusing, we've got to look at it in context. The surrounding verses, the surrounding chapters, the book that it's contained in, the historical context in which it is placed, and how that fits into the uh, list of other scriptures. So, the four laws of scriptural interpretation. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. Note the difference between description and prescription. Genre matters, and scripture interprets scripture. So, with that being said, and those things being firmly established, let's look at the question. Does God endorse polygamy? In the Old Testament. At first glance, there are certainly places where it really seems like he does. As we've already discussed, there are numerous examples that exist of biblical figures, prominent biblical figures, that are polygamists. Let's take David, for example. A person who is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And this cat had a bunch of women. His first wife was named Michal. So, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 27 tells us, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. Uh, That's a fun story for a number of reasons. Um, I don't have time to get into all of the fun reasons why that story is so interesting today. Um, If anyone ever thinks that the Bible is a boring book, uh, show me another book with stories like that one. Um, But uh, this tells us that his first wife um, was Saul's daughter, Michal. Then, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 44, um, we find that Saul takes Michal away. He annuls this marriage. Uh, Chapter 25, verse uh, 44. Saul had given Michal, his daughter David's wife, to Paltai, the son of Laish, who was of Galilee. I think that's how it's pronounced. 
Um, then uh, David marries Abigail in, uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 42. It says, Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So that's verse 42. So he was married to Michal. That marriage got annulled. Now David is single. Then, in verse 42, David marries Abigail. One verse later, verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. So now he has two wives. He's on his third wife, but two of them are concurrent. So now he's married to Abigail and Ahinoam. So this is prior to him being king, and he's married to these two women. After he is anointed king, he apparently marries a woman named Igla and has four additional concubines. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 5. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam. His second, Kaleb of Abigail, the widow of Nabal Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim of Igla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So now he has additional wives and additional concubines. Igla, Makkah, Geshur, Haggith, and Abital. Then we read in chapter uh, 5, verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and after he came from Hebron, more sons and daughters were born to David. So, uh, an indistinct number in, in this verse, more wives and concubines. And then, of course, we know in the story of Uriah the Hittite that David also takes to himself Bathsheba. So putting together all of these and a couple of other relevant texts, we know that David had at least eight wives and at least ten concubines. Eighteen women at minimum. And yet, interestingly, God never condemns him for doing so. We don't read a verse where David is told by God, oh, and by the way, you shouldn't have married so many women. That's a sin. And in fact, we have an even greater problem than that, because one verse suggests that God purposely gave him more wives. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, which is on the screen, this is the story of Nathan confronting David after he has killed Uriah and taken Bathsheba. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is not a positive statement. It's not like, oh, David, you're the man. It's like, David, you are the man who's in the wrong. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Oops, wrong verse there on the screen. I'll read directly from here. Uh, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So here we have God saying to David, I gave you Saul's household. 
I gave you Saul's wives, and if that were not enough, I'd have given you even more. So Nathan is confronting David for his sin with Bathsheba. This seems like a perfect time for Nathan, through God, to say, and oh, by the way, about all these wives that you have, that's a sin too. I think all of us would want him to say that in that moment. Instead, it seems like he says the opposite. I gave you all these wives. And if that wasn't enough, I'd have given you more. So it seems like God is okay with David's polygamy. even encourages it, right? Then we look at the story of Jacob. So we looked at part of Jacob's story last week with all the spotted sheep, right? In Genesis chapter 29, we read that David wants to marry Rachel. But Laban tricks him. And so instead of marrying Rachel, he marries Leah. But then he works another seven years so that he can marry Rachel as well. So now he's married to both Leah and to Rachel. But then we also read in Genesis chapter 30 that he also has children through two concubines named Bilhah and Zilpah. These are the maidservants of uh, his wives. So that's two wives, two concubines, totaling four women, and zero words of condemnation from God about that. And we come to Solomon. Sheesh, right? We, uh, we read from First uh, Kings 11, chapter 3, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women. These are, these are Wilt Chamberlain numbers that we're talking about here. And yet again, I'm, I'm glad somebody got that joke. Thank you for laughing. Really. Um, yet again, no word from God to Solomon, you have sinned in doing this. Now, we'll look at some other examples uh, as we go. But from this, you kind of get the point, right? These these men are not explicitly condemned for their polygamy, and there even seems to be some support for it. Next, we come to the idea of leveret marriage. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 5 through 7, which says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his wife shall go up to the gate uh, to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. So another um, term for this is, uh, another term for leveret is the idea of kinsman redeemer. And one of the more famous stories in the Bible of a kinsman redeemer is the story of Ruth and Boaz. So in the story of Ruth and Boaz, Boaz has a familial responsibility to care for Naomi and Ruth. And there's this conversation where there's another family member who's closer in line, and so Boaz goes to that family member and says, 
are you going to take your familial responsibility and acquire the property uh, in, in this field? There's a field. And at first the guy's like, oh, yeah, I'll take a field. And then he says, oh, and by the way, if you do this, there's also, you got to marry Ruth. And the guy's like, oh, uh, I didn't know that. That's going to affect the inheritance of my family. So how about you do it instead? So Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, the, the leveret in this uh, situation, taking for himself the wife of the dead family member. But it naturally brings up a question, and that is, what if the kinsman redeemer is already married? Is he then commanded to be polygamous? Um, I am number two of four brothers. Three of us are married. The youngest is the only one who's, who's not married. Um, so if my older brother uh, passed away, God forbid, in this culture, one of us would be commanded to be the kinsman redeemer for my older brother because he does not have uh, yet a biological son. Does this then command polygamy? In this sense. Interestingly, in another sense, we look at the fact that adultery in the Old Testament came with a penalty of death. If a man was caught in adultery, or if a woman was caught in adultery, they were to be stoned. And not in the drugs way, in the death way. So, we ask the question, well, if adultery comes with a penalty of death, why doesn't polygamy because in our minds, that's adulterous, right? Well, polygamy did not. So, central to our shared uncomfortable feeling right now is the unmistakable truth that there's not a place in the Old Testament, nor in the New Testament, where God comes out and explicitly says, Thou shalt not commit the sin of polygamy. He condemns adultery, why not this? So where does that leave us? Everything that I've said so far are the reasons why Cody Brown and others like him say the Bible supports polygamy. I was reading um, on, uh, on one site uh, earlier this week where the author wrote um, a treatise in, uh, in support of biblical polygamy. And I was reading down through the comments, which is always more fun than reading the article. And he, he said in the comments, I have this position because I used to hold to, to a view of monogamy. And I was actually moderating a discussion board on monogamy versus polygamy. And every single argument for monogamy in that forum was logically destroyed. So I had to uh, change my, my view. And now I believe that the Bible teaches polygamy. So, do I think that? No, I don't think that. So, I'd like to offer us a few possible solutions to this. Each of these can't be taken just by itself. I think these have to be taken as a group, um, together. So, with each one, if you say, well, that's not strong enough, perhaps not by itself, but with all the others put together. So, solution number one is that God gave an original design as a blueprint. This is where we have to start. You guys that have been here for a long time know that I have preached more sermons out of Genesis 1-3 through 3 
than any other section in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So at the very beginning, God puts forth this design in creation. He creates everything, and then at the end of that creation week, he says, it is very good. So everything that God does in this creation design is perfect. It is as it should be. This idea, this very verse, is later on confirmed by Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We're going to come back to this passage in Matthew chapter 19 uh, in a couple of minutes. But what happens here is Jesus does something on purpose when he's, when he's talking to the Pharisees. He reestablishes the perfection of the creation model. There are only four chapters in all of the Bible where everything is perfect, where everything is exactly how it should be, where everything is as it is designed. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. And so anytime we ask the question, what should things be like? Look at those four chapters. Because in those four chapters, we have everything as it should be. What's happening in Matthew chapter 19 is the Pharisees are trying to exploit loopholes in the law. They're trying to find weaknesses that they can trap Jesus in. And so Jesus, in response to that, says, let's go back to even before the law was given to Moses and ask the question, how was it designed to be? And that is what you ought to strive after. Now, polygamists argue that this, this verse that says the two shall become one flesh, polygamists will argue that a man can be one flesh with more than one woman. But I would argue, and I think Jesus here argues, that, that is not the case. You cannot be united to more than one person. Interestingly, there was an episode of Sister Wives where one of the wives detailed on the show that she and Cody were having some marital problems, and she felt like she wasn't being heard. She said that one of her issues was that she felt she doesn't feel like she's an equal partner in this whole relationship thing. You don't say. It's kind of hard when there's five of you uh, for everyone to be equal. So, the first idea that we have to establish is that God, at the very beginning gave a blueprint for how he intended things to be, and then through Christ we established that, called our attention back to it, and said, strive after this. Uh, second, polygamy was forbidden for church leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., etc. Now part of the reason why this is important is because church leadership 
was given as examples to be followed by the rest of the congregation. They were to be held up as models for how the, the rest of the congregation ought to live. That means that they had a responsibility to live up to an ideal that everyone else ought to follow um, in response to. Furthermore, John Piper makes the observation that Paul would not have used these words without qualification if polygamy was viewed as an accepted lifestyle. So, if the early church, which is trained by Jesus and, and followed by his disciples, if the early church viewed polygamy as being blessed, as being permitted, as being an encouraged lifestyle, I find it hard to believe that Paul would write this verse in this way. He would qualify it somehow. He would say, except, of course, if you have a healthy polygamous marriage, and that's okay too. But he doesn't say that. So, for church leadership at least, it is expressly forbidden there. And that should give us a clue about the rest of the church in following that example. Solution number three. Polygamy, like divorce, was tolerated by God, even though he hated it. So, uh, let's go back to um, Matthew 19 for a moment, and look at the earlier verses in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees came up and said, uh, tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So again, in the context of this passage, Jesus looks at these people who are trying to exploit loopholes in the law and says, remember how things were in the beginning and strive for that. And their, their question that they bring up is, well, if that's true, why then does God, through Moses, allow for divorce. And Jesus' response to that is, because you're hard in heart. God made a concession for you, even though this is not his design. Okay, So you can't look at a concession and say, well, then I can take this too. This is a liberty. Jesus says, this is not a liberty to take. This is a concession that was made for your hardness of heart. You ought to strive for the original design. We read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. And so, God makes it clear, his view on divorce. God hates it, but he allows it. There are certain situations in which he permits it. Because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus says. He allows it as, as a concession, but makes it clear that it's not his ideal. It's not his design or desire. This is not the way that I want things to be. But because you are fallen, there are situations in which I allow it to happen. So why then would God allow polygamy? Perhaps 
It has to do with the fact that in ancient culture, there was not a, a way for women to be provided for or taken care of outside of the family unit. Either in the father's house or in a husband's house, a woman was cared for. If she no longer had a, that roof over her head, so to speak, then the only option left to her was prostitution. So perhaps as a means of protection for women, he allowed men to continue to be married to one, more than one woman, even after they repented and turned to Jesus. So, perhaps this is a concession. Solution number four. Like divorce, leveret marriage, kinsman redeemer, was designed as a means of protection, not polygamy. So, leveret marriage is designed for protection, not polygamy. Though it is not explicitly stated in the text, the consensus among scholars is that the kinsman redeemer, ideally, would be single. This is actually stated in the Talmud, in, in, in Jewish law, but not in the biblical text, and in Jewish custom. So it's safe to assume the cultural understanding of that being there as well. That the first person that would be looked at would be the single brother. So again, I'm one of four brothers. My youngest brother is unmarried. If my oldest brother died, Nicholas would be the kinsman redeemer, not me. Now, I know that my family watches, and Katie would never want to be married to Nicholas. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, we have to understand that Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, 25, where this is talked about, is in context a part of the civil law of Israel. Now, Another sermon for another time that I've preached before, which you can find, is what about the Levitical laws? And this was part of the, the series that, uh, that I taught last summer. And I, and I said that there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. And, and it's important to understand that distinction, because civil laws in the Old Testament applied to the nation of Israel during the conquest of Canaan. Civil laws do not apply to anyone here. Um, civil laws do not apply to us. Uh, I read uh, a good commentary on leveret marriage, and, and the author was comparing leveret marriage to divorce, and he said this, Similarly, leveret marriage was provided to prevent a bad situation from getting worse. The perpetuation of the family line and a permanent share in the land were two of the biggest material blessings that God gave to his people. Beyond the material experience was a profound message that God would create and preserve a people who would enjoy his enduring promises. But a man who died with no children lost his place among the nation since his name would die out and his share of the promise, land, would go to someone else. Leveret marriage then guaranteed that a bad situation, i.e. losing a man, didn't lead to worse harm, i.e. losing a family line. Were it not for death, a leveret law would never be necessary. He continues, leveret marriage was very different from typical bigamy or polygamy in its intent. In polygamy, a man sought to acquire wives for his own benefit. In leveret marriage, a man was assigned his brother's widow for the sake of the deceased. Leveret marriage was apparently a less than desirable scenario in many cases, since the law attaches a shameful stigma to the man who would refuse his legal obligation. So we see here that this is not the same as just getting another wife. It is carrying 
for your brother's wife, though certainly in a way that makes us uncomfortable. So polygamy is not what's being described here. Levirate marriage is meant for protection. Solution number five. Sometimes God uses narrative to teach instead of command. There are, after all, more than one way to teach a lesson. Take Aesop's fables, for example. Aesop's fables were stories with morals attached. Instead of just coming out and saying, don't do this, a story was told. And in that story, the characters played out what the moral was trying to communicate. Oftentimes, the narrative in Scripture functions in that exact same way. That even if something is not explicitly stated... Characters are given, and setting is given, and and the narrative follows a particular arc that shows something that the reader is supposed to come away with. And the narrative arc of the Old Testament, in part, is purposely showing over and over the failures of each one of the leaders. One failed hero after another. One failure after another. And and these are people that are, are, are... looked at as, is this going to be the one to lead us? Well, no. Is this going to be the one that makes a difference? No. Is this going to be the one? And no. And we'll talk about a a little bit later on how that narrative arc is purposely meant to lead us to Jesus. But it's purposely showing us the failures of the people so that we do not repeat them. Like I was saying earlier, when when we look at uh, these stories... We are meant to walk away with, not go ye and do likewise. We're meant to walk away with, wow, what a terrible mistake. I better not make that same mistake myself. Um, Dr. Peter Gentry, a professor of Old Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary, points out that in the New Testament, the heroes of the faith from the Old Testament are lauded not for their morality, but for their faith. Um, They're lauded not for their own works and righteousness, but rather for their trust in God. Now, I would argue that's not entirely true. Um, For example, 1 Peter 2, verse 7 calls Lot righteous. But the point still stands, right? The Old Testament saints are praised most for their willingness to believe in God in spite of what it cost them. They're not lauded for being upstanding, moral, perfectly righteous people in the way that they operated. And another thing that's important to understand in this narrative is that the topic itself is important because Scripture teaches us, and this is again something that we'll look at, Scripture teaches us clearly that marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is essentially an experiential analogy of the gospel itself, which is why for us it's so perplexing that God doesn't just come out and say polygamy is wrong like we'd expect him to. Instead, what he does is he shows us, through the failures of these men, why we can't deviate from his original design. So he shows us the original design at the beginning, and then shows the many ways that men fall further and further and further away from it uh, until he comes in the flesh to save us. So, going hand in hand with that is the next solution on the list, number six, which is that each story of polygamy ended poorly and or reestablished 
an original marriage. So every single one of these situations that I brought up earlier has more to the story. Okay? And it's easy to look at something on the surface and go, oh my gosh, but then when you examine it further, it's important. And that's why you have to examine every story in detail. So let's take a, 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 another look at some of the stories of the men that we talked about before. Jacob, David, and Solomon. Okay, so let's talk about David. We established the fact that David had many wives. But what we also need to establish is the consequences for his sin and then the result after he repents. So, 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Again, this is God speaking through Nathan to David, and he says to him, Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So here, God tells David a couple of things. Number one, strife is never going to leave your house because of your sin. You sin, and you'll be punished for it from your own house. Number two, I am removing all of these extra wives from your household. David's illegitimate wives are given to other men to marry. So after this, after hearing the word of the Lord, David fully repents, right? And we get Psalm 51, which is one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance in the Bible. And then we find a really interesting verse in chapter 20, uh, verse 3. And I think I neglected to put this... um, on the presentation. So, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 20, verse 3. It says, David came to his house in Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines, whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. So, David has multiple wives, multiple concubines, right? He has all these women that he's married to. God confronts him after he goes off the rails with many sins, okay? A number of sins. He racks them up. God removes his polygamous wives and marries them off to other people. David repents, sees the consequences of his sin playing out in front of him, And here takes even the concubines, who it clearly states, interestingly in this verse, were housekeepers at this point, and gives them their own private wing in the castle and is never with them again, leaving him with one woman, Bathsheba. So God takes his polygamous situation and whittles it down to one. Now, what about the verse that says God gave David Saul's wives? Well, that verse is not God giving those women into David's harem, okay? It was customary for kings to either add the previous king's wife into their harem, banish them, or execute them. God, clearly here, intends for another purpose. And that is that God was giving these women into David's care. Everything that he had given to Saul, he gave to David. Everything that was Saul's went into David's charge. 
which also includes the alliances that were built, the political marriages that he was in. David would continue to be aligned with the kingdoms whose princesses married his predecessor. So God takes this polygamous situation, whittles it down to a monogamous situation. How about the story of Jacob? Again, he marries Leah, and he marries Rachel, and he takes concubines. But after all of this, we find Jacob coming to a place of repentance. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 4, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob had not, until this point, been living as a righteous man. We talked last week about Jacob's life story, about he was a trickster, he was a cheat, he was someone who was a deceiver. God brings him to a point where Jacob finally releases all of the idolatry and finally comes to a place of surrender, where he fully gives himself to God. And in that same chapter, after this act of repentance, God then enters into a covenant with Jacob. At that point, the covenant with Jacob begins, and God in that covenant changes Jacob's name to Israel. And we read, immediately after this, Rachel dies. She dies in childbirth. And we're told that she's buried in Bethlehem. Now that might not seem like an important detail, but it is. Because at the end of Jacob's life, in chapter 49, when Jacob dies, here's what we read. Uh, Genesis chapter 49. Jacob's death and burial. It says this in, uh, in chapter 31. There, in this location, uh, let, me, let me back up. These are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with a blessing suitable to him. He commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. I'm about to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there... I buried Leah. The field and the cave that were in it bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So we read there that Leah is, is buried with Jacob. Not Rachel. Why? Because Jacob recognized her as his legitimate wife. He was married to her first. He recognized, in the eyes of God, this is the woman that I am married to. Rachel dies and is buried along the way in Bethlehem. Leah is buried with Jacob. So she is the one who belongs in the family burial ground. So after Jacob repents and after he follows after God, he's brought back to one wife, whom he honors in the latter part of his life, unlike he did in the early part of his life. Then let's look at one verse concerning Solomon. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. 
Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were his princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Clearly in that verse, we read, Solomon was doing things that God had commanded him not to do. And the result of that was that his heart was turned away. And we match that up also with the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon essentially gives us a play-by-play of all the ways that he lived in worldly ways and how it was meaningless and empty. So when we look at these stories, what we find is that God is making it clear through the narrative that he was not at all endorsing or encouraging polygamy. In every single one of these situations, he whittled it down to what it should have been. Lastly, let's look at one more nail in the coffin, which, to be honest, was the thing that this week made me feel a lot better about all of this. Uh, Solution number seven. God did condemn polygamy to the one group that it typically applied to. It is easy for people to say, well, there's examples of polygamy all over the Old Testament. God is all about polygamy. But, when we look at the text, there are 29 men in the Bible, 29, who are said to have had polygamous marriages. Of those 29, three of them are righteous men, or what we would consider righteous men. David, Joash, and Solomon. Notice that I did not include Abraham in that list. Because, while he was married to Abraham, he slept with Hagar... That is not the same thing as a polygamous marriage. Now, Genesis, Genesis 25, 6 does say that Abraham had concubines. But that's another issue. I also did not include in these three Jacob, who married Rachel and Leah and had two concubines, because as we talked about, God changed that story. Some argue that Moses was polygamous, but that's not explicitly stated. And you got to insert that into the text. So that leaves us with three examples of righteous men who were polygamous in the Bible. Again, with David, God put away his wives after he completely repents. Solomon did a lot of terrible stuff and wrote a book about how he learned from it all. And he was led astray. As for Joash, 2 Chronicles 24.3 gives us a, a couple of pieces of information. We read here, Joash, who was a king of Israel, Joash acted righteously only as long as the high priest Jehoiada was alive. Jehoiada, the high priest, is directing it. So as long as Jehoiada is is moving the puppet strings, Joash is acting properly. As soon as Jehoiada died, died, Joash falls into idolatry. So it's not Joash, it's rather Jehoiada who's righteous. Verse 3 does tell us, weirdly, that Jehoiada, the high priest, gave two wives to Joash, and that he had sons and daughters. But it doesn't tell us that that was at the same time. These verses are, are giving an overview of a 40-year period. So, the summary of the 40-year reign tells us that Jehoiada gave two wives. It doesn't tell us if that was at the same time. So, that leaves us with a grand total of zero polygamous relationships blessed by God. It's natural for us to ask the question, why didn't God say anything about polygamy? 
But out of 29 people in the Bible who are mentioned as having polygamous marriages, okay, 29, five of them are foreign kings, evil kings, two of which are kings of Babylon. Okay, hardly, you know, positive examples. So that leaves 24. Of those 24, 10 of them are Israelite kings. So more than half of the examples of polygamy in the Bible are kings. Outside of kings, that leaves us with 14 people, most of whom, if not all, are tribal leaders of very large tribes in a leadership role. None of whom, by the way, are pointed out as being moral. So it's very important for us to, to note that polygamy in the ancient world was not common. The vast majority of men had only one wife and no concubines. And part of the reason for that is money. The average working class man could not afford the bride price of more than one wife or to provide for more than one wife. Polygamy was something that was only available to someone wealthy enough to afford more than one wife. In the ancient world, as now, wives are expensive. Can I get an amen? Right? Amen. Amen. So, one possible reason that God doesn't condemn polygamy explicitly is that 99.99% don't even have it on their radar. And I'm not just pulling that statistic out of the air. Again, those numbers, 29, whittled down to 14, whittled down to 0. But just looking at the 29, we are talking about 3,000 plus people that are named in the Old Testament. There's like 3,200 different people named in the Old Testament. 29 of them are said to have had polygamous relationships. And 24 of them are people in Israel. So we are talking about 0.009. So it's not even 99.99. Okay, 99.99% of people did not even have polygamy on their radar. The people most commonly associated with polygamy are kings. Because kings could afford to have more than one wife. And not only that, they did this for status, for political partnership, for clout, and of course, carnal pleasure. And in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God does forbid kings from having many wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Speaking of kings, and they shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, there's also a verse uh, after this that says, silver, gold, and horses. And polygamists will look at that verse and go, well, obviously he's not talking about more than one wife because is the Bible saying kings are not supposed to have more than one horse? Obviously, when you look at the verse in context, God is saying, do not acquire for yourself all of this for the purpose of clout. Have an appropriate number of horses. Have an appropriate amount of silver and gold. You are not in this position to get rich. You are in this position to lead my people. And so you shall not acquire many wives for yourself. So, to the one group that would need to hear it most, God does condone, or God does condemn polygamy. For the vast majority of people, no command was needed. Because God has already given them his design and creation, and they couldn't even consider polygamy as an option anyway. So why doesn't God spend more time giving commands on polygamy? 
probably the same reason why he doesn't spend more time on things that don't apply to hardly anyone. And in this verse, he does address the, the one group that it applies to and says, don't do that. So, those being said, I think we can close the case on whether or not the Bible endorses polygamy. So let me just finish with one observation that I think helps us answer the question of why this is even in here. And that is that the narrative arc of Scripture leads us from failed saviors to a perfect Messiah. Again, the reason why this topic is important is because of what the Bible teaches us about marriage. Marriage being a reflection between the relationship of Christ and the church. Marriage being an experiential analogy of the gospel. And so, in part, the, the, the function of the narrative is to show us not only what he originally wanted, but to show us how people fell short from that until Jesus comes. It is not by accident that the first instance that we have of polygamy in the Bible is Lamech. Lamech is the first instance of polygamy in the Bible. After Cain, from his line, comes Lamech. And in the function of the story, we have Cain, who murders, and then we, we see how far society falls from that, leading up to God destroying the world. And in this story, Lamech literally sings a song bragging about how he murdered someone. And he's singing this song to his two wives. So he's given as an example of how far things have fallen from the original design. That, that's not a mistake. Because the narrative arc of the Old Testament is purposely leading us to Jesus, showing us one failed hero after another. So among other things, it, it's telling us that the failures of some of these men include having more than one bride. Because it's ultimately going to lead the reader to see that failure until they rest their eyes on the true Savior, who has only one bride, the church. And that is us. We are the bride of Christ. And so marriage, in its original intent, cast our eyes upward to the God married to one bride. That, I think, is why this is even in here. And I, I don't know about you, but I can now breathe a sigh of relief as I believe this question has been answered. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for the truth that comes out after examining it. God, I pray that this has been edifying to us. I pray that it's been encouraging to us. God, I pray that it trains us to see the Bible in the right way, that it trains us to really dive deep and look at the full story. God, I pray that we would be people of the Word, people who passionately uh, look at the Bible for truth, people who passionately dive in for, uh, for, for you to lead us and guide us in our lives. God, I pray that we would be people who love the Bible because we love you. God, I pray for any person who's never come to a place of falling in love with you. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself that you would show them that you desire to spend eternity united with them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We would stand to a closing worship.